everyone, welcome to You Thought You Were an Environmentalist, an environmental justice podcast. My name is Sydney Porter. And I'm Maddie Weiss. And in this episode, Over Tourism and Underrepresentation, we are going to talk about tourism through the lens of environmental justice. Unfortunately, in today's world, many people experience environmental injustices daily. Across nations, people are subjected to environmental, economic, and cultural degradation on the basis of race and class. Oftentimes, these issues are perpetuated by corporations hoping to turn the greatest profit at the expense of people's livelihoods. In this episode, we will explore how communities that are geographically, economically, or culturally isolated are adversely affected by physical structures of tourism. Specifically, we will be looking at the impact of theme parks and tourist-based land development on villages in Bali, rural India, and the French Quarter of New Orleans. Let's take a look at Bali. Beautiful, tropical Bali. It's seen as an escape from reality by tourists around the globe. Known for its beautiful beaches, unique Balinese Hinduism, and amazing surfing, it's no wonder that there's no shortage of luxury resorts and eager travelers on this Indonesian island. But this tourist paradise is just that, a tourist paradise. Life for the locals is not quite so glamorous. Amidst the luxury resorts and glamour are impoverished locals and water inequalities. So what's going on here? How can there be grand resorts on one part of the island and villagers struggling to maintain their livelihoods on another? To understand what's actually going on here, we need to understand the unique context of this issue. So who are the players here? First, we have the locals. And before I get more into this, I would like to acknowledge that I am in no way ethnically or culturally linked to the Balinese people and I cannot speak for them. Alright, now let's talk about what's going on with the local culture and government. Diving into University of West England Professor Stroma Cole's 2012 case study of Bali, Cole details the importance of water in the lives of locals beyond just basic survival. Historically, Bali has supported its agricultural practices through the subak system. The subak system is a method in which the landscape is altered to accommodate for better irrigation of rice paddies. Since the 11th century, the Hindu Balinese tradition of water temples combined with the Subak system brought the equitable sharing of water among people of all ranks in the caste system. Water, in today's Hindu Balinese tradition, is seen as a way of maintaining balanced relationships between people, gods, and the environment. So, while water is, of course, necessary for everyone's basic survival, water also carries a deep cultural significance. Water is also vital in supporting the rice paddies and declining agricultural industry of Bali, as well as in domestic use. But water is also important to another key player on this island, the major land developers. You know, the ones building those glamorous resorts and the people who keep them running. According to Cole's research, these people, these resorts, are responsible for the use of 65% of the available water in Bali. 65%. And the crazy thing here is that people don't even realize just how much water they're consuming. Many villa managers genuinely believe that Bali has plenty of water and they implement almost no water conservation measures into their properties. And it isn't just the consumption of water that is the problem here. It's also the land use and the purposeful disregard for existing environmental protection laws and the development regulations. By finding loopholes or claiming ignorance, developers manage to get away with excessive and unsustainable removal of forests. When deforestation occurs to make room for resort or villa development, 
Not only is protected forest damaged, but excessive rain that would have been absorbed by the forest and go back into the ecosystem is instead removed from the ecosystem as runoff. This makes water even less accessible, as some of it runs off the island and into the sea, while what is kept often ends up polluted by either salt water or toxins within the environment. Then there's the government. You know, the ones allowing the developers and tourist industry owners to overrun the island. The relationship between government and industry is explored in Warren and Wardana's 2018 study, Sustaining the Unsustainable. Warden and Wardana detail how environmental management has evolved in Bali over the last three decades alongside a growing capitalist influence on the island's economy. In the 1980s, in what is referred to as the New Order era in this region, Indonesia was undergoing a capitalist expansion that called for the privatization of economic assets and deregulation of private enterprise. During this period, tourism began being utilized as a developmental strategy. Bali deregulated its economy and welcomed foreign investments, shaping state policy to encourage this tourist-focused growth. At the same time, there was a growing public demand for environmental protections. Because of this, Indonesia passed its first environmental management law in 1982. Since the passing of this first law, Environmental Impact Assessment, or EIA, have been intertwined with corporate economic interest. The modern EIA process requires both supporters and opponents of new projects to present scientific backing of their arguments for the EIA commission to review. And yes, having scientific backing is a great thing. But what this inevitably means is that whichever side can pay for the best scientific backing and has the most expendable resources can win over the EIA commission. The government, so eager to encourage development, decided to leave the fate of the environment in the hands of the highest bidder. Unfortunately, the highest bidders are rarely the concerned locals. So why aren't the Balinese fighting this? In Bali, the traditional cultural norm is to revere the authority of the government and trust that the government will always do what's best for its people. This means that while the government prioritizes tourism as a means to boost the economy and puts the water use needs of this industry over those of the local people, the older local people are disinclined to actively protest. But this doesn't mean that the locals aren't taking issue with this. It just means that due to this unequal power dynamic, they are often unable to band together to show disapproval of these measures. However, unrest among locals is growing as the Balinese farm economy declines and locals find themselves having to purchase bottled drinking water instead of being able to rely on natural sources because of the pressure from developers on land use and infrastructure. While villa owners are not even aware that water scarcity is an issue, the Balinese are facing the direct impacts of it daily. But because of the declining economic status of many locals and the traditional power dynamics, locals find themselves in this difficult position of being barred from resisting the very groups responsible for the water scarcity. Those in Bali who do seek to resist damaging development projects are often at a financial disadvantage against major developing companies. So, while the Balinese may not be fighting this issue in an obvious way, they are actively working to protest policies that prioritize non-Balinese peoples through a combination of social media and satirical traditions. Through these methods, Balinese youth are gaining ground-level support for real change. What all of this adds up to is the fact that the government and development related to the tourist industry 
is actively working against the interest of locals. As water becomes increasingly scarce due to resort use and tourist-related water pollution, locals are the only ones who suffer the effects. Their unique culture and rice-based agriculture both suffer greatly as fresh water becomes inaccessible. Next up is the beautiful fishing village of Garai, located in rural India. It was often referred to as India's last frontier due to its vast portions of untouched land. That is until the Indian government pushed for the country's largest amusement park to be built right next to the fishing waters that run Garai's economy. But why would the government continue to push for the park when they knew it would jeopardize the livelihood of tens of thousands of people? Unfortunately, there is always more than meets the eye. On the outside, Garai is a small village that runs entirely on fishing. Composed of approximately 25,000 fishermen, everyone in the village works toward supporting their mono economy, whether that is through making fishnets, fishing, or exporting catches to cities. When the Indian government proposed plans of placing the country's largest theme park, called Esselworld, just outside of Garai, to outsiders it appeared as though very little thought went into its placement. Even in its initial stages, it was understood that Esselworld would be a massive operation and would require 64 acres of land just for its water park attraction. For a park this large, not only would a lot of land be needed, but it could also help with overpopulation in metropolitan areas. With Esselworld in a rural area, it would encourage more people to leave cities and stimulate rural growth. However, that wasn't the only reason why Garai was an appealing location for Esselworld. Esselworld was built on the premise of Terra Mulius. This meant that government officials were able to seize all of the land that was not outright owned by villagers. This is a huge liberty the government invoked due to the fact that very few people in India actually own the land they live on. What is even more upsetting is that the government was fully aware of the villagers' dependency on that land. When Esselworld was initially proposed, there was major backlash from local villagers. According to Chowdhury, the villagers knew even then that tourism and the influx of tourists on their region would pose great risks to their industry. When the government continued to ignore their pleas, the citizens of Garai peacefully protested on a number of occasions and were repeatedly brutalized by police. One of the larger protests occurred when the villagers blocked the ferries filled with people going into Esselwald. But why Garai? The Indian government could have chosen any rural area for Esselwald, and yet they chose Garai. Government officials were fully aware of the damaging effects the theme park would have on the surrounding areas. Thus, they decided to kill two birds with one stone, because what is not usually mentioned is that Garai is 90% Catholic. This is an incredibly high rate considering that the vast majority of Indians are Hindu and that Christians make up less than 3% of the population. Fully aware of the cultural and economic impacts of Esselworld on Garai, the Indian government placed a theme park near Garai in order to erase the piece of Catholic history in India. We can now see that the placement of Esselworld is an example of environmental injustice based on religious persecution. The effects of Esselworld are numerous, but their intent is the same. The increased boat traffic carrying the theme park goers and the increase in noise pollution has led to fish largely vacating the region. This has jeopardized the livelihood of the entire village. Sadly, these problems do not stop there. As vehicle traffic has increased, government officials have pushed for wider and wider roads than the local infrastructure can support. This has displaced the people living close to roads and poses health concerns with the increased air pollution that comes from cars. According to villagers, the government has also imposed sound restrictions so that they are unable to celebrate religious holidays with their customary parades. Ultimately, Esselworld has forced the economic and cultural collapse of the village of Garai. This has forced thousands of Catholic villagers to disperse and relocate in order to provide for themselves. 
This will eventually lead to the loss of cultural practices as this community's traditions and ways of life are diluted through dispersal. This example of environmental injustice proves the systematic ways organizations use environmental impacts to undermine groups that pose threats to their establishments. We can see that despite the geographic and cultural differences, the environmental injustices occurring in Bali and Garai are fundamentally very similar. Both locations' drastic and sudden influx of tourists has strained the local infrastructure to beyond what it can support. This is due in part because these areas are economically isolated. Before tourism became Bali's largest industry, the region was primarily agricultural. The same is true for Gurai when it shifted from its fishing-based economy to one of tourism. In both regions, when the tourism industry began to boom, the changes were so sudden that the infrastructure that had previously been successful in supporting people began to fail when stretched to its limits. Furthermore, both areas were deeply affected by increased tourism due to cultural isolation. Bali's own culture is incredibly rich and unique to its island, in part because of its geographic isolation. Similarly, Garai is in a rural area with limited access to the outside world due to religious persecution driving them far away from cities. In both Bali and Garai, the shift from local industry to government-supported tourism-based infrastructure has impacted these very different regions in very similar ways. In both locations, we can see that locals are forced away from their livelihood and are economically forced to be uprooted. Original inhabitants are then left to either leave their homes or work in the tourism structures that have ruined their livelihoods. We can also see that resources originally intended for locals are being shifted away towards tourists. The needs of original inhabitants are now second to the tourists that float through their areas. This creates a stark inequity in luxuries between locals and tourists even though they are confined to the same areas. This gentrification of the land will ultimately drive out everyone due to increases in rent as wealthier families begin to settle the land. Overall, we can see that geographic, cultural, and economic isolation have contributed greatly to the instability of these two regions. The instability associated with sole dependence on local industry led to major issues once tourists began straining local infrastructure. With nothing to fall back upon, locals became destitute and oftentimes forced to relocate in order to provide for themselves. But not all tourism occurs in remote paradises. We find similar negative impacts on marginalized populations as a result of an overbearing tourist industry, even here in the U.S. Tourists interested in the vibrant history of New Orleans might find themselves in the historic French Quarter. Home to the oldest cathedral in America, tales of buccaneers, and the famous Mardi Gras celebrations, the French Quarter hosts a complex and vibrant history of black agency, colonization, and competing narratives. Although this issue is closer to home, it's on U.S. soil. I'm a white woman from Washington State. While I may have an outsider's perspective on this subject, I made sure that this was not the case for my main sources. The two sources I heavily draw on were both written by Louisiana academics, and the source I used for historical and social context was written by Linnell Thomas, a black woman from New Orleans. While I care about this issue and hope to highlight the environmental justice issues in this community, the complexity of this subject is far more expansive than any one person can cover, and I hope to use my position as a way to bring attention to the people whose voices and histories are ignored by the white masses in the French Quarter. Historically, this area has been referred to as a neutral ground between the Spanish, French, Black, and Indigenous peoples. 
It has been romanticized by the revitalized tourist industry as a place where various cultures are celebrated and the inequalities of the past have been overcome. And according to Associate Professor of American Studies Linnell L. Thomas, the events of Hurricane Katrina only exasperated this image even further. Following Hurricane Katrina, money was needed to restore and revamp New Orleans. Without a major industry to rely on, Attention was put towards redeveloping the French Quarter to expand the existing tourist industry. With its vibrant history and historic neutral ground status, it seemed like the perfect choice for a major tourist attraction. The thought process at the time was that the revenue from the tourist industry would trickle down to benefit everyone living in the French Quarter. And while some people did benefit, others certainly did not. While it is primarily people of color and those of a low socioeconomic class who do the labor to keep the tourist industry afloat and their histories that have constructed the narrative of which the tourist industry capitalizes, these people are also the ones who remain overlooked and in poverty. As Thomas notes in her 2018 article about the historical context of the French Quarter, the statistics reveal that the inequality between black and white New Orleans residents has boomed since Hurricane Katrina at a rate greater than the national average during the same period. And if we look at Kevin Fox Gotham's analysis of tourism based on gentrification in the French Quarter, we see that median income and poverty values have been on the rise since the 1980s, well before Hurricane Katrina, which has been resulting in the increasing displacement of low-income, predominantly black peoples who have historically occupied the French Quarter. This increasing economic disparity leads us to wonder, why are black residents not benefiting from the redevelopment of the French Quarter? After all, isn't it their histories and their labor which has led to the unique culture and stories of the past that interest tourists so much? So there is clearly something going on here. We need to take a look at the context that fostered such disparity and what historical narrative the tourist industry has been presenting. We need to understand why the majority of social justice action in New Orleans has been a push to reclaim spaces that have been taken over by segregation, brutality, gentrification, and privatization. Beginning immediately after World War II, city officials began looking into how to develop a tourist industry as a means to enhance the city's prosperity. However, in 1974, the state of Louisiana passed several statutes which included a reduction in the ability of local governments to collect income taxes, the requirement that two-thirds of both houses of the state legislature would have to approve any local tax increases, and expanded exemptions on property taxes. What all of this means is that the city governments were forced to rely more heavily on sales taxes as a source of revenue, which was incapable of supporting public services in the region. To make matters worse, the oil market crash of the 1980s depressed the local job market. The New Orleans economy was in a financial crisis, only made worse for urban black residents who did not experience the benefits of redevelopment efforts that were occurring in suburban parts of the city due to racial segregation in schools and housing. After Hurricane Katrina devastated the area, the recovery efforts and federal aid were used to accelerate the tourist development in the French Quarter while leaving the poor and marginalized communities of color with little to nothing. These conditions are what led to New Orleans' fervent reliance on tourism to boost the economy. Now we are left with a city that subsidizes hotels and shopping center development and shows little concern for the residents who are forced out of their homes. 
the old mom and pop local businesses, working class oriented cafes and jazz clubs that once decorated the French Quarter have been driven out by chain restaurants, designer stores, and corporate tourist development in a process that Kevin Gotham refers to as tourism gentrification. This brings us to today. The modern French Quarter may appear to be a vibrant cultural hub, but black residents feel that the once unique sector is now a gentrified shell of what it once was. This is somewhat ironic as people are drawn into the French Quarter because of its bohemian and hedonistic aesthetics, yet the structures of the city that contribute to this image are being lost to tourist development and the neoliberalization of public space. By trying to build a tourist empire in the French Quarter, the region has lost touch with the past that has shaped it and the role of black people in this history. As a means of protesting the erasure of black history and agency in the French Quarter, black New Orleanians are working to reappropriate the space and stake a claim in spaces that are coded as white. Monuments to a white supremacist history and Confederate past are challenged by black community members through tours of the French Quarter that explore the city's history of slavery and Jim Crow and are led by black activists such as Leon Waters. Local coalitions have formed in protest to the growth of tourism and have filed lawsuits against large hotels as a means of halting development. Through these means, residents of the French Quarter who have been historically marginalized and economically isolated by tourist-focused restoration efforts are fighting back against the overdevelopment of the French Quarter. We can see stark connections between the villagers of Burai and the black communities of the French Quarter. Both of these groups are majority-minority communities, meaning that they are minority groups in a large concentration in a given area. The Catholic villagers of Gorai are nationally a religious minority, but are the vast majority in their village. Similarly, the African Americans in the French Quarter are racially considered a minority, but dominate the local area. This comes down to the difference of religious and racial persecution in the context of environmental justice. Among all three examples, we can see governmental concern and funding lean more toward tourism infrastructure than the people that actually live there. This shows how governmental concern only really follows the money as opposed to the needs of its citizens. We can see this results in a power imbalance between local voices and the agendas of governmental officials. The impacts of tourism go well beyond the economic and into the social and cultural realms as seen in all three examples with cultural degradation. While in Gurai and the French Quarter, this was more intentional, nonetheless, we can see that in all three locations, the cost of tourism is the erasure of local culture and history. Whether local cultures are used as tourist attractions or not, the effects of tourism are still devastating. Among all three locations, the combination of cultural, geographic, and economic isolation contributed greatly to the instability of local infrastructure. Tourism has changed the landscape of these regions. As a result, these intrusive industries have erased local history, placed economic pressure on locals, and created land use inequities. The price for tourism infrastructure is the needs of the people that already live there. Governments support these tourism industries by claiming the money generated will go back to the people. Unfortunately, we can see that this is simply not the case. Money initially generated is then put back into tourism infrastructure, which does nothing to benefit the locals. All in all, it's important to know that tourism can be done in a way that helps support locals and their infrastructure. Ecotourism is just one example of this. Ecotourism is the concept that the natural wonders will attract tourists without jeopardizing the local environment. Oftentimes, locals will be employed to be tour guides due to their extensive knowledge of the region. 
their local knowledge is incredibly valuable in the ecotourism business. This way, locals are able to participate in the tourism industry and actually enjoy its benefits rather than just government officials. In the end, we can see that while settings may change, the stories of environmental injustices are largely the same. Oftentimes, governments and corporations are fully aware of the harms their structures pose to local inhabitants and have embraced them in order to earn more money. However, it is important to note that there is hope when it comes to avoiding these injustices. When local people come together with scientists and policymakers, this is referred to as the co-production model, it ensures that policies reflect the needs of the people. These needs or desires will often be backed up by research and can help to avoid environmental injustices in the future. It is important to recognize that these impacts are detrimental to communities and often mean the difference between life and death. The saddest part is that these injustices can be entirely avoided. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast of You Thought You Were an Environmentalist, an environmental justice podcast. I'm Maddie Weiss. And I'm Sydney Porter. Thank you for listening.